Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals at Ryu Hotels and Resorts in Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central America. And enjoy a selection of exclusive non-stop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia, and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a world-renowned chef and owner of Think Food Group, Jose Andres. I am just so happy to have Jose here as he is a chef and an incredible global humanitarian. He's all about food and activism, which as you know are two things I love the most. Jose is known for bringing small plates or tapas from Spain to the United States, but you might know him more for a number of other reasons. He's a New York Times bestselling author, he is a television personality, he is the owner of nearly 20 restaurants, including Mini Bar, which has received two stars from the DC edition of the Michelin Guide, and he is the founder of World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit devoted to providing meals in the wake of natural disasters. Jose has been awarded the National Humanities Medal. He was named Outstanding Chef and Humanitarian of the Year by the James Beard Foundation. And he has been twice named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He and I got to talk today about how he first became interested in food, his childhood in Spain, his career in the restaurant industry, and how that led to his work around the world to help end food scarcity and hunger. Without further ado, let's jump in and get cooking on this episode with Chef Jose Andres. Chef, it's such an honor to have you on the show today. And I'm really excited to talk about your work and World Central Kitchen and your activism. But before we get into all of the amazing things that you're up to now, I'd like to go back a bit and start closer to the beginning, because I'm curious about a young Jose. I know that you grew up in, um, what is the proper pronunciation? Is it Mieres? Mieres. That's Mieres. Uh, that's the perfect pronunciation. Okay, good. <laughs> so you grew up in Mieres, Spain, and 
I've never been to that part of Spain, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it and, you know, what what were you up to as a little kid? So Mieres is a, a mining town. Mining has slowly been fading away. Mm. But uh, back in the days uh, when I was born 51 years ago in the hospital of the Spanish Red Cross, it's a place that I... I speak about my childhood, but uh, my mom, uh, who passed away three years ago, always told me that it was impossible I had any ideas or remembrance of what was going on because it was only four or five when we left Mieres. Mm. Mieres is in the province of uh, Asturias, in the very north part of Spain. Mm. And it's a beautiful place that you can be uh, surrounded uh, by snow, uh, in top beautiful mountains with uh, shades of beautiful greens with chestnut trees. Mm. And all of the sudden, 30 minutes later, if you go towards the coast, you are in the ocean mm-hmm. uh, where you will see cows in the landscape next to apple trees where they will make cider, which is the national drink of that region. And at the same time, you will see the fishermen arriving every day to the local tavern after a very long day up in the ocean, trying to get anything that the ocean will be willing to give them. That was very much my 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 childhood. Uh, aromas of cider, of, of apples, of chestnut trees, mm. of the sea. Uh, obviously, uh, I was an immigrant very, very early in my life because when I moved to to Barcelona in Catalonia, mm. uh, I guess was the moment I was realizing that uh, mm. my mom, my dad came from one part of Spain, but here we were coming to another part of Spain with different food, different history on itself, different culture, mm-hmm. different language. Mm-hmm. And I think my early childhood was that beginning to understand that I will embrace being an immigrant, that we became bridges, that we'll mm. bring faraway places closer together, showing that what makes us different is actually what makes us unique. And mm. that was very much uh, my early years, my childhood. Oh, I love that. It's beautiful. I fell in love with tapas in, in Barcelona. My One of my best friends went to grad school there and we used to go and visit her uh, over our Thanksgiving break. And I mean, I you had to roll me home by the end of the week because I was just like trying to eat everything I could get my hands on <laughs> around the city. It's so amazing. So Barcelona for me, obviously, is the city I became uh, a little a little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left school very early. My father relies on my mother that the traditional school system was not for me. Mm. Uh, was the days that I began learning about how to uh, code, how to write my own programs on mm. on on basic, something like look so far away now, when uh, I had a computer that was the Commodore 64 and Amstrad. <laughs> that now when you tell anybody about those things, they, they look at you weird, like you had to write your own programs. Like, well, uh, you did if you wanted. I wanted to be an actor. Uh, I was in uh, in my uh, the little town where I grew up uh, in Catalonia. Uh, 
in this uh, acting uh, group. And we will do different things like the ghost of Canterville, uh, where I play the ghost or even Echoes of Peter Schaefer. And and I will play basketball and I will play soccer because the town was very little and you had to play everywhere in order to have enough people to play anything. Uh, and this was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, who do you need? I don't know how to do this, but if you need people, let's do it. And very early on is when ob- always helping my dad and my mom, who were nurses. Mm-hmm. My mom will be more the cook during the week. My father will be more the cook on the weekends. Even each uh, mm-hmm. each one will help each other. Uh, I will do more the shopping. I was the older brother of, uh, of four, going on my bike every day to the bake, uh, freshly baked bread, mm-hmm. uh, sur- surrounded by amazing uh, cherry trees. I remember in the spring when all the beautiful white flowers will be like this amazing horizon mm-hmm. that sometimes will be touches of pink because the peach trees also will say, hello, we are here too. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not only the cherries, the ones that count. Look at me, look at me. And you will look at the white of the cherry flowers, the beautiful peach trees, and this was my other, obviously, uh, next childhood. And mm-hmm. my father would put me to cook often, uh, helping him make the fire, gathering the wood out of the nearby forest, uh, making branches, making the fire. And he will make paella, this mm-hmm. traditional rice Spanish dish that is... A lot of people love paella, but uh, <laughs> uh, not a lot of people do a lot of research how paella is uh, done in Spain. So everyone makes their own recipe, which mm. which is great. But sometimes the recipes you see made around America and around the world, they are a little bit too much in the Star Trek uh, outer edges of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, too many Klingo, too many Klingos, and I used to go up helping my fire, make the fire, and knowing that cooking was a happy place for me. That shopping and going to the market, mm. um, being around the farms and the orchards was my happy place. Oh, I guess God. I didn't decide I wanted to be a cook. Life decided for me mm. I had to be a cook. Well, and the way you talk about the place and the food and the process and the people and the environment—it's very poetic and it's very intimate and cooking I think is is so intimate you know there's something to using the land around you and knowing who grows your food and having a relationship with people when when you make something then for everyone around your table it's it's a love language it it is a love language because even I am very pragmatic when I talk about those things because we need to be pragmatic because at the mm-hmm. same time as a young child I only saw the beauty then you realize that in that process uh, sometimes the people that feed the world are hungry themselves yes or those beautiful places that we take photos that we have a woman in any part in the world cooking in the middle of the street mm. where we 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 romanticize that moment when actually sometimes it's a lot of hardships on that mm-hmm. person cooking in the streets. Uh, mm-hmm. I have no problem supporting street food, but sometimes we need to be slightly careful because uh, some people are in the streets because they have no other place to belong. Yes. And, and, and it's not all a beautiful photo mm-hmm. Instagram. Uh, you mentioned love. I mean, let's see how can I explain this uh, 
without anybody thinking I'm a strange, uh, uh, young, 51-year-old boy. But the, the first moment as we come to the world that we receive a gift that is physical, Mm. Even we are highly unconscious because we have only a few minutes, a few hours of life outside the bomb of our mother. Is that moment that we are being fed. Yeah. A moment that I wish we all will remember. Mm. Because I think this attachment we all have to our mother. So the father, if, mm -hmm. if gave you a baby bottle, if you think about it, is the first moment that we receive a gift, that we receive something like happens is food. That happens is probably one of the most beautiful moments you can experience. I've been there watching my wife, feeding my three daughters, uh, mm -hmm. almost with envy, uh, because that's a beautiful, fascinating moment mm -hmm. that forever uh, we get attached to food. And that's why longer tables and not higher walls mm -hmm. and giving and sharing food with people mm -hmm. we know and people we love or new people that come into our lives. Mm -hmm. That moment of sharing food and making sure that we share with others who we are through food, mm -hmm. that seed is planted in the very early minutes of our life with the love of our mother. I think that's so beautiful, Jose. And it strikes me because, you know, the story that you tell about your experience with your family in your neighborhood making paella. I think about, you know, my mom talking about hand making pasta with her grandmother, you know, her grandmother and her mother who were born on the same farm in Italy. I mean, it's that the, the, the beauty of the locality and the familial nature of food is the best of what it is. And to your point, when we begin to look larger when we back up and we get more of a bird's eye view and we look at the system of food and the system of subjugation that exists in food and so many other industries and and the food insecurity that causes hunger one of the things that struck me as so special that you said you spoke about your parents both being nurses and in an article that you wrote about the aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, you said kitchens and hospitals are two different worlds, but I believe that the fight to feed the hungry needs to learn from the history of the fight to heal the sick. And that really hit me because the best of medicine is healing, and yet the medical industry is broken, and the best of food is intimate and beautiful and local and about family, yet the food industry is a mess. And I'm so curious about how you have found your way both as a chef and an activist because there is so much love in what you do and there's so much beauty in the way you talk about it. And even in the way, by the way, that you talk about being a father, you know, you talk about your wife and your three daughters. I'm curious, as you learned about food, you know, you you mentioned that you left school early because it wasn't for you. You enrolled in culinary school in Barcelona when you were just 15. You worked at El Bulli, which I have so many questions left for another day. <laughs> but I'm so curious about how, how your sort of launch pad into this world of incredible culinary work and cuisine is also mirrored by your commitment to people. Were, were those things happening at the same time or, or 
Or was it first about the food and the courses, and then later you looked at the systems? I mean, obviously, where, when you are young, you, you, you're happy to, to belong, right? Mm. <laughs> you're, you're happy to be part of the celebration of life, and, mm. and, and you look to discover. Uh, I got my early opportunity of discovery when I joined the uh, Spanish military it was uh, mandatory to, mm. but it changed my life because it was uh, a very powerful experience. They put me to cook for the Admiral of Spain and I was like, no way, Jose. Uh, <laughs> first time I got an opportunity, I told him, dear sir, <laughs> uh, thank you for the honor. They chose me to cook for you, but I want to go on a boat and I don't want to go on any boat. I want to go in the training ship of the Spanish Navy where the midshipmen get their training. This was a four-mast tall ship. Uh, he granted me my wish almost with tears on his eyes. And I remember a 10th of January of 1990 that I got onto that boat and I sell the oceans uh, of, of life. And it's first time I saw Africa, first time I saw South America and the Caribbean, mm. first time I came to America, Pensacola, New York. Um, this for me was uh, my early start in seeing that the world was a beautiful big place that uh, I was hungry, hungry for more. And obviously for me coming to New York in more ways than one after I finished my military service changed my life in the sense of without moving from Manhattan, mm. the melting pot that America is described, I could experience every mm. ethnic cooking, every ingredient, um, every new technique, uh, aromas and flavors I never even imagined. And as a young boy growing up in the streets of Manhattan, I got uh, my first opportunity to eat escamoles, the amazing maguey worms of Mexico in a taco, or having curry that I never imagined, all the mm. fragrance and the flavor in one dish, or the very different things that a young mind that wanted to learn, that was hungry for more, without moving from a not even a city, but without moving from my entire neighborhood, one of the biggest, most populated islands in the world, I was literally uh, uh, eating my way around the world. And this really made me, in many ways, uh, who I am today. Mm. So what was the pathway to eventually coming to live in the States? How, how did you make the decision to leave so Spain? So I, I finished my military service. I went back to El Bulli. Mm. For the ones that don't know, uh, how can I explain? El Bulli, if we will speak about the Big Bang and the creation of the universe, uh, obviously cooking was already invented. But somehow, obviously, <laughs> for, for hundreds uh, of thousands of years in Omili, we, we, we realized that uh, El, El Ferran, I was uh, probably 16, 17 when I went to war with him, uh, that he was this young man. He was only 24 his, on his own, but his way to see things was very different. Mm -hmm. he, will, he will respect tradition, but at the same time, he will say, uh, we need to respect tradition, but we should question where that tradition comes from. Mm -hmm. And if it not should be evolved, 
why we need to keep doing the things that people 200, 300 years before us began doing. It's not our time to keep improving and changing and moving forward. Mm -hmm. So this is the amazing place I was where I began understanding that to, to cook with ingredients, you must understand ingredients. You must listen to the ingredients. You must look at a glass of water, not like you know what it is, but almost with wonder to say, what secrets this glass of water hold that because I go through life like I know everything, I'm not stopping to second guess myself and second guess everything is known. This was Ferran Adria, a guy that helped many of us that we've been through his prism of life, uh, mm. the person that planted the seed of innovation, obviously, but innovation that came out of willingness to be surprised, willingness to ask yourself mm. the right, because we forget that sometimes the important thing is not a good answer, but the right question that mm. opens you a whole world of opportunities. The right question. I love that. When you think about the questions food leads you to, how did that inform your next steps? Because after Abuyi and coming here, you ended up in Washington, D.C., and you started a hugely successful restaurant there, Mini Bar, in 2003. And you, you've done all this work in the community, you know, because of the D.C. Central Kitchen and these local food organizers. So, so when you are talking about being at the sort of pinnacle of food, molecular gastronomy, you know, looking at the glass of water as hydrogen and oxygen and figuring out how something oxidizes in a pan with another ingredient. I mean, you're talking science and art, and then you're talking boots on the ground, activism, and making sure that you can empower people and their communities through food. So where do those two things meet? How does that begin? I know you've been asking me that, and I seem not to get to the to the answer because it's many. I love all the stories. We don't have to get there right away. It's it's many ways uh, yeah. to get there, right? Uh, when I was in the military service on that tall ship sailing the world, his first time probably I saw big inequality. Mm. Not like in Spain where I grew up, there's no people maybe having hardships. But this is where I saw in the streets of Abidjan inequality I didn't see back home. It's where mm -hmm. I saw in the favelas of Rio Janeiro that mm -hmm. I saw inequality I never saw back home. Uh, in the streets of Dominican Republic that I saw inequality I didn't see in the same way back mm -hmm. home. This began connecting my early first uh, readings when John Stenbeck became my first American author I read in English and read, learning about the Pearl and how there was inequality uh, and, re and reading about the Grapes of Wrath. And they were seeing how it was inequality in the richest country in, uh, in the world. All those little things began, little seeds that began shaping this young boy. Uh, I still, I, I feel I am at times. Uh, uh, and I think was many people, right? Sophia, you and, I, you and I, we are the people we are, thanks to the people that, we have around us. Mm -hmm. People we had in the past, even people we forgot, 
people we read a quote that somehow became very important in our brains by somebody mm -hmm. sometimes we don't even remember, a teacher, a friend, uh, a foreigner in a bus station uh, giving us a smile or or helping us uh, covering the, the ticket we didn't have enough money in our pockets to pay and a person you never saw again. A small acts of kindness and empathy that began shaping all of us in the way we are and we become. To this day, I am who I am, thanks to my wife, my daughters, my friends, mm. uh, the people working, obviously, with me. So those stories began being those seeds. I arrived in D.C. Uh, I learned that across the street from my first restaurant, Haleo, on 7th and E Northwest, in a place in Washington we call the Penn Quarter, mm. Clara Barton had her office, the missing soldier's office, Many people don't even really know who Clara Barton is. Even we see her here and there on walls, on buildings, on the streets, maybe. Clara Barton was this amazing woman, like a nurse, like my mom, mm. who very much studied to be a nurse uh, pregnant of my fourth brother. So my father could be getting some help with an extra salary to keep feeding all, 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 all of my brothers and I. Uh, Clara Barton single-handed created this organization to take care of the wounded soldiers on the civil war, began finding what happened to the loved ones so the families could bring some closure to what happened to those men and women that they never saw again. Clara Barton became an influential figure in my brain in the distance of time, uh, amazed that I didn't even know about her before she founded the American Red Cross. Mm -hmm. I saw myself almost like emulating her. She, when the Capitol uh, was attacked over a century, uh, uh, over a century ago, she went with food to the Capitol to provide food to the soldiers that mm. were guarding the Capitol. Can you believe this? Um, wow. World Central Kitchen, myself, I was following her footsteps, bringing food to the many people, providing relief and security to the Capitol after January 6th. Fascinating. Robert Egger, you mentioned this is Central Kitchen. Robert Egger became a fatherhood figure to me in more ways than one. Uh, he's the man that I met when I was 23, upon arriving to D.C., away from my restaurants. Mm -hmm. He had this kitchen. He. Everybody talks about food waste. Mm -hmm. Why we don't talk about wasting people's life? Of sure, we should not waste food. But this is not about wasting food. It's we are wasting people. This is what is really important. So... Let's not get caught in the wrong uh, uh, important uh, issues. Mm. Food waste should not be happening. But what we should not be happening is wasting people's. Robert Egger, Robert Egger was that person for me. He told me that philanthropy seems is about the redemption of the giver, when philanthropy should be about the liberation of the receiver. Mm. It's okay to do good. It's okay to feel good doing it. Nothing wrong. Everybody should feel mm. good if you do something good, but mm -hmm. we must do better. To do good is not enough in the 21st century. We mm -hmm. must do a smart good because mm -hmm. if we are not able to solve the problems that we are facing, uh, but yeah, let's keep giving money. Let's keep giving our volunteer time. Mm -hmm. But then 50 years from now, we'll look back and the same problems mm -hmm. will stay there because we keep repeating the same old recipes. Yes. So why World Central mm -hmm. Kitchen? 
because many of those stories, many of those moments, many of those books, those places I visit, those connections that you began seeing that everything seems is totally disconnected, mm. but every one of us and every single issue, especially when we talk about food, it's more interconnected than we think. At the end of the day, mm. if we really look deep when we have a plate of food in front of us, and we shouldn't, but I think sometimes we must. We could very much, as Briat Sabaran, the French philosopher in 1826, he said, tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. I think this is even deeper. Tell me how you eat and I will tell you what world you want to live in. Mm -hmm. And that's why food requires more understanding and it requires that we give uh, more importance in at the social level, at the political level. Mm -hmm. uh, and because if we start thinking food should stop being the problem and food can once and for all become part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And I think for most of us, being more emotionally and geographically connected to our food I remember years ago um, with, a, with a wonderful group of people actually talking about hunger and food systems and water, being asked to go through almost like a waking meditation at a dinner and to look at everything on the plate and imagine where it started and how many hands it had to touch. Who picked this tomato? and then put it in a crate, and then someone carried the crate and put it on a truck, and then the truck was taken to the front of the farm, and then from there the crates were loaded onto a larger truck, and then they were driven by someone on a highway who had to get gas from a gas station on that highway and pay someone for that gas, and then they had to bring them to, and it goes on and on and on and on and on until it's processed and gone into the grocery store and put on the display, and then you go and you pick it up and you bring it home and you cook it and you serve it to someone. And can you imagine all the hands that had to gently hold that piece of food so you could eat it? And I can't help but think about, especially now, you know, a year into this pandemic, the incredible work that the people who have kept the world fed have had to do. And then the strange politicization we see in America of certain governors saying, you know, immigrants who work in, in, um, in our food industry aren't going to get vaccinated. And I'm like, hold on a minute. It, it feels so personal and it feels so big. And sometimes when I look at the scope of the industry and where the problems are and where the people inside of it can be harmed, I think about your TED Talk and you talking about getting on the ground in Puerto Rico and you were going to all these meetings and this devastating hurricane had just happened and millions of people were without power and the island was devastated. And there was FEMA saying, well, okay, so what, what program can we launch in 20 days? And you're just my favorite. You're like, 20 days? We have 20 minutes. And you just started making phone calls. And all these people were saying, how did you get this? And how did you get a kitchen? And how could you get food? And you said, because I called people. And you went into immediate response mode because you knew there was no time to waste and and I wonder does your experience in restaurants because restaurants are immediate cooking is immediate serving people is immediate 
Do you feel like in that moment you could see through all the red tape and you knew that you essentially just had to get in the kitchen and get to work? Uh, by the time I was going to those meetings, I think we were already doing like 30,000, 40,000 meals a day. Wow. Um, already? Uh, already. We, we, we went from 1,000 meals a day to almost 120,000, 150,000 meals a day. Wow. We went from 10 friends to more than 25,000 Puerto Ricans that helped feed Puerto Rico. We went from, and this only within our organization. Uh, yeah. I'm not counting many other people that they did amazing, great things. Uh, we went from one kitchen to 26 kitchens. Wow. We, we didn't only do almost 4 million meals ourselves, but I know we were able to plant the seed in many other organizations, many other people all across the island that because they saw what we were doing, they mm -hmm. said, you know what? We can do the same in our neighborhood. We can mm -hmm. do the same in our little town. And, and this was the be most beautiful thing. Uh, not so much what we did, but how we, uh, how we were able just to inspire many other people that maybe they didn't join us directly, but in the spirit, we were all one very big family doing tens of millions of meals. Yeah. Um, I, I think the words of Martin Luther King, the urgency of now, uh, especially in emergencies are more uh, more important than ever. For us, it's not even the urgency of now. It's the urgency of yesterday. Mm. Because if we don't even bring more urgency to the issues we are facing today and recognize that they come already from, from behind, mm. uh, we are always too slow and too... And, uh, and you know one thing I realized, Sophia, that some of the bigger problems we face they actually, technically, they have very simple solutions. Mm. We humans, we are a beautiful animal species, the homo sapiens we are. Uh, we, we, are we are a very unique species because uh, we are smart. We are already uh, with a helicopter in the surface of Mars flying for 40 seconds. Isn't that amazing? Uh, and this tells me that it's nothing the human species cannot achieve when we put mm. our empathy, uh, our pragmatism, mm. and our brains and heart at work. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, uh, when you mentioned before, the health, the food system, it's, it's plenty of things that work, obviously, in our society. Uh, mm. Sometimes I look around, I'm like, why are some people so negative, saying that nothing, nothing works, when this works, this works, this works, this works, but we need to recognize that this, this, this doesn't. And especially for the people you mentioned, the voiceless, the ghost of our system. And I mean ghost with the most respect. Mm -hmm. Ghost because technically they don't belong. Ghost because technically they are not part of the America we love. Ghost because, but let me tell you one thing. Those men and women, 11 million undocumented, for example, one, two million dreamers that they don't know any other country but America and the many other Americans, sometimes many generations that live in parts of America that they feel forgotten. Mm. Those people, especially in emergencies, uh, I never see Republicans or Democrats. I you see American people that mm. they pull together, they believe in longer tables and they do whatever it needs to be done to take care of their fellow citizens, their fellow mm -hmm. Americans. That's the beauty of yeah. what we see, that people inside them, 
everybody wants their worst demons out mm-hmm. and everybody wants to bring the best angels yeah. on the table. And we need to have leaders and we need to elect leaders mm-hmm. that want to bring the best angels inside all of us. Mm-hmm. And when sometimes uh, it's much better used to be creating mistrust and and showing that those that don't look like you or are the enemy versus they are just people that they are different and they bring yeah. something else to the table uh, is when we began having problems. But I still am a big believer that America and the world is full of wonderful people mm-hmm. that we need to give voice to those that have the good messages and try to put away the ones that want to break us apart. Yes. Uh, we don't need those people uh, anywhere in America or anywhere around the world. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, to your point, this idea of coming here as an immigrant and what the American dream means, you know, my mother's mother came here through Ellis Island and my father immigrated to the United States in the 70s. And, you know, the, the American dream is the most alive in households of immigrants because it is this global idea of a literal dream, a family, an opportunity. And and to your point, I get excited when people want to be here. I get excited in diverse communities. And the, the leaders who want us to think um, that someone is more American than someone else, I always want to know who they're getting paid by. <laughs> I'm like, who's paying your bills? What are, you, what are you advocating for? Because, and you've talked a lot about this with World Central Kitchen, you know, hunger is not a red state or a blue state crisis. Kentucky is an incredibly red state. And in the last census, 12% of adults there said they didn't have enough to eat. And California is a very blue state. And 10% of adults here say they don't have enough to eat. So there, there is a, I almost feel like we need to lift the veil of, of the, lie the otherism and say, hey, we're in this together. How can we heal this together? To your point, Jose, how can we stop talking about food waste? And how can we start talking about if this many people in America go hungry every day, and this is the amount of food that gets wasted, why don't we just give those people this food and solve this problem? We, We have the capabilities but to so many people who aren't experts like you are, it, it, it can feel insurmountable. It feels intimidating to try to fix it. So in all the advocacy you've done and in all the learning about food and, and you know, by the way, I'm, I'm going to brag on you for a minute because you're not going to do it. But, you know, you served four million meals after Hurricane Maria and, and you have done incredible work on the ground, in so many avenues. You've been named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. You have Michelin stars. You've, you have a humanities medal. You have a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Association of Culinary Professionals, a James Beard Award. I mean, you are at the top of your game in your personal career, and you are one of our most fierce and loving public advocates. So my curiosity is, what, what I see when we talk about everything you've done and achieved is expert, 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 expert. So as our expert, what would you suggest to people like me who care so much about this issue but don't know what it is they can do? That idea, I'm one person. What can I do? What can I say? Who can I call? How can I advocate? 
How do we all as a collective, the folks listening here and the folks they're going to go talk to about this when this episode is over, how do we show up to help you help people? How do we show up for food and for hunger and for humanity? Uh, I said before that the big problems that I have very simple solutions. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, very often uh, I will say, and this has happened to me and I'm trying to change, mm-hmm. I still have time to change, is that um, I will say in a very bold way, because you can do no harm, uh, I want to end hunger in the world. Mm. But uh, right now it looks very difficult to achieve that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is like if you're trying to get the apples at the very top of the tree. Mm. But why we don't concentrate in what we can all do? W- what about the low-hanging fruit? Mm. The low-hanging fruit is there for a reason. Those are the places and the things that you can touch, that you can be active, and that actually you can try to make a difference that then if you succeed, you can bring that example to all their communities, to all their states, to our country, or maybe to the world. Mm. So in my brain, I'm more and more, as a big dreamer I am, uh, for something I, I born on July 13th of 1969, and, you know, we were arriving to the moon in that moment, and and, uh, and I'm a cancer, and, and I'm a dreamer in many ways. <laughs> but the, I think we need to have the boots on the ground and dreaming, uh, they go hand by hand yeah. uh, because the dreams allows you to think big, but the boots on the ground uh, allows you to be successful in, in key things. Mm. So we've been talking since I arrived in America about food deserts. In the richest country in the world, we have community after community, mm. white community, uh, black communities, Native Americans, the Navajo Nation, um, Anywhere is food deserts. Mm-hmm. And usually where there is food deserts happens is also job deserts, jobs deserts, mm. hospital deserts, school district deserts. At the end, poor people, they have almost nothing of nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's start trying used to fix one more problem. Let's stop having conferences about ending food deserts. Let's make sure we get the president, the governors, the congressmen, the senators, and say, what the federal government can do in partnership with the private sector and in partnership mm. with NGOs and the local communities to make sure that we stop talking about food deserts because we are going there and we are making sure that every one of those communities will have a functioning market where families can walk by mm. because many of those families don't even have public transportation or they don't own a car. Why we don't start making sure that they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables? Why we don't make sure that maybe because there is a taco truck and a coffee shop and the local diner, that those families, especially women, especially women that have to work two jobs and still don't make it at the end of the month, mm-hmm. that the food stamps we give them, snaps, more technical, technically speaking, mm-hmm. that they can use it in the local restaurants. In the process, 
you are freeing that woman sometimes from the labor of having to be feeding the entire families when she has to be working 16 hours a day every day. Mm -hmm. In the process, that money helps feed their family. In the process, that money helps that money to stay in her community, which will stop being so poor. All of a sudden, that local diner, that local food truck is doing better. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. they can be employing more people. All of a sudden, that one dollar that comes from the federal government, which, by the way, I don't want to be giving any Anything to anybody because people don't want our pity people want our respect but we must understand that sometimes some Americans some people in the world fall behind that's why you have a government to make sure that the government are not next to the ones we are doing well but mm -hmm. especially are next to the ones maybe not doing so well yes. but with the wind behind the cells helping them sell on their own yeah. we can do better by not throwing money at the problem, but investing in the solutions. If mm -hmm. we're trying to help the poor neighborhoods of America, if we are trying to lift up those people from poverty, let's make sure that every dollar we put is not use something that is wasted, but something like actually mm -hmm. not only empowers those families to move away from what the hole they may be, but helps their community helps the local businesses, helps the local farmers. And all of a sudden, slowly by slowly, using the low-hanging fruit mentality, we can be fixing some of the bigger problems because, I repeat, the solutions are simple. Mm. But we need to have the will because if we have the will, there will always be a way. Yes. And some of the kinds of investing, and that's kind of how I think about it, right? We all, as citizens... We invest in America, we pay taxes. There's meant to be a return on investment and the return on investment has to be for the country. It has to be for the greatest good. And you've spoken a lot about how there are so many food and nutrition programs we take for granted. There are sectors in which the government invests that we benefit from, that we take for granted because these investments were decided upon a long time ago. The, the last time there was a food summit at the White House was 1969. It's yeah. obviously time for a new one. And, <laughs> and I get so excited about what you're talking about because you put some dollars into the community as an investment and the community grows. And you've talked about this with the Feed Act and you wrote this amazing piece in the New York Times called We Need a Food Secretary. So can you tell people a little bit about what that act and what a food secretary, if we made those changes, like what could actually happen in terms of communities and in terms of policy? Well, I can say that is, uh, I know in this administration is a lot of things happening behind the scenes that mm -hmm. hopefully we will see things and announcements in the next uh, weeks and months. Obviously, uh, I was trying to challenge everybody because you get attention when you try to create a new department very much, right? Yeah. And especially when, when, when I don't know why even anybody publish whatever I write, but, but people start thinking and then you start having phone calls from different people. Oh, Jose, what, what's wrong with the USDA? Well, I, I'm not doing a good job. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, no, let, let, I'm only saying we must do better. Bigger, uh, better. What I'm trying to say is that I created a class eight years ago at George Washington University. The idea came almost 10 years ago, which the idea was, uh, let's create a food institute 
that mm. we will put foot in the middle and we will start seeing all the opportunities we have through food for uh, job creation, climate change and the environment, uh, understanding our history so we can fix uh, with better solutions and better decisions the present uh, we face. Food is immigration reform. Food is FEMA and homeland security. F food is empower, empowering the countries near America to do better so we don't have the problem we are facing right now in the southern border because no, no person wants to leave their homes. Mm -hmm. They only do it when they are so hungry that they look to the place that may be food. Uh, all of a sudden, food is at the heart of very much everything we are. But somehow food is never in the conversation of any politician. Barely ever. Never. At the most when they are, they are talking to farmers and that's about it. Mm -hmm. So food is the most important energy on the face of earth. Mm. It's, it's not gas, it, it's, it's not fuel, it's food because food moves the most important assets, which are not cars or planes, which are humans. Therefore, we must not take food for granted. Mm. Uh, and we are taking food for granted. So why we have uh, a health pandemic? Uh, with Americans that are poor but are obese at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this is happening. This is a new, a new conundrum of the 21st century that only humans could create, mm -hmm. that we will be malfed, overweight, and with a lot of sickness in the process of trying to, to stay alive, which is fascinating. So uh, uh, Secretary of Food, uh, what I'm applying, I'm asking more is to have somebody near the president of the United States mm. that in the same time he has national security advisors on defense, terrorism, any other issue that is important that the president is aware of, mm -hmm. that person will be uh, bringing to attention of the president at all times the important issues with the possible quick solutions in the short, mid and long term. And more important, understanding that we are not going to fix the food problems we have in America and therefore around the world, only at the USDA, at the Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. I think Secretary Bilsack is the right person for the times. He brings a lot of experience from before. Uh, uh, he knows his staff, and I do believe he is going to be bolder than even he was in the times of President Obama. And hopefully we're going to see good things happening in the next four uh, years or beyond. But food is also uh, the Department of Transportation to make sure that the right infrastructure, infrastructure is in place. So if farmers have too much production of something, food doesn't go waste and can be delivered to other parts of America or, or, or soup kitchens or food banks to make sure that the food that is not wasted, that we can pay the farmers so they don't mm. waste. Their, uh, right now we are paying farmers almost for not producing. How? Are we crazy? We should be paying them for producing and making sure that that money is shared with people that may need in America and maybe in other parts of Central America and or beyond. Food mm. deserts. We need the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, the Department of Defense. They should be investing in better quality school lunches. Why? Because was the Department of Defense the ones that actually asked Congress 
for extra money to feed children in the schools better after World War II because they didn't have enough people to, to join the, the military. Wow. And we keep going and going. Instead of the Department of Health spending money in fixing Americans, let's make sure that the Department of Health invests as medicine, good quality food that keeps American healthy. All of the seven saving billions of dollars a year, all of a sudden keeping America working, America yes. prosperous. You see, all those issues are highly connected. The mm -hmm. people we have right now in Tijuana, in El Paso, in the southern border, I've been there for many weeks. We mm -hmm. got back to back uh, in September, October, November hurricanes, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, underwater, mm -hmm. entire farming areas. People lost their livelihoods. They lost their homes. They had nothing. Yes, they have governments that maybe are not providing for them, but Europe, America, the richest countries in the world, they must do better. So we invest in them. Mm -hmm. We create factories in those communities. We mm -hmm. create jobs in those communities. Those communities do well, we do better. Mm -hmm. So as you see, food is fascinating because if you put it in the center mm -hmm. and you analyze the world we live in connected to food, Mm -hmm. We can have a better world only if we think what this plate of food in front of me can change tomorrow if I have the right ingredients on the plate. We must do that. That's why I'm asking to this administration and beyond. I work also with the Trump administration. I am a guy that one needs to feed people. I work with anybody who's willing to work with us, mm -hmm. is willing to work with me and listen. Uh, but with this administration, I believe that President Biden gave me the honor a few months ago that probably is the first time ever that is a town hall where mm -hmm. a candidate for president dedicates entire hour to talk about food issues. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm very hopeful that President uh, Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris uh, will really put food uh, closer to the mm -hmm. center of the plate and hopefully come once and for all with a smarter, uh, bigger decisions. Hopefully mm -hmm. the conference, well inside the White House or well outside, uh, uh, well, the Secretary of Food or some other form of leaders in the departments that will handle food like Troy Trojan horses of good. Mm -hmm. I hope that in the next three years, three and a half years, we're gonna see smart decisions made on behalf of American people where we all are gonna believe that longer tables, no higher walls, is how we're going to be creating yes. a better America. Yes. Uh, and it feels, you know, to the point of the conversation, how, how big a problem can feel. These are the kinds of solutions that make it feel possible. I feel sparkly and excited and inspired because when you see the way the systems are all connected, and you realize that if you can get into the middle of those connections and create a solution, the solution travels to all sides of the problem and does its work, it feels so exciting. And I, I hope that because we're in this time where more and more people want to talk about systems and how to make them better, they, that they will be willing to listen to exactly what you're saying and realize the solutions are... They're not political and they're not geographical. They're really and truly based in every single community, no matter where they are or how they vote. There's a way forward for us if we, if we use this as our central connection and it, 
It feels exciting. I I am so amazed with all you've done and I really can't wait to see what's coming next for you because you feel like one of those people to me who I want to look to and say, okay, what's he doing? Because that's where I want to get involved. Uh, you need to understand that on this pandemic, we began very much uh, activating Wall Central Kitchen the 1st of February when we went to Japan to start feeding the first cruise ship that was arriving to port with COVID cases on board. And we wow. began feeding in Yokohama because nobody seems were able to handle it. We've done many issues, many times uh, cholera situations and where we are is never cholera. So because we have very good systems for health and, mm -hmm. and the health protocols to protect our teams, to protect the people we are feeding, we follow uh, helping Governor Newsom in Auckland when the next mm -hmm. cruise ship was arriving in March with yeah. uh, more people with COVID. And in that moment, we realized that early on that uh, COVID was going to be hitting everybody. We began looking at 1918, 1919, the badly called Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I began learning about how people handle it over a century ago. We began buying masks. All mm -hmm. of a sudden, uh, Wall Street Kitchen, I remember I was with my car giving away N95 masks to hospitals in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, because we had masks, because we bought them for our teams, for our cooks. Wow. So at the, at the end, I began like, how can we be so ahead of what is to come when, when on paper you have experts that only should be thinking about that uh, and get more ready for it? But that's fine. I hope that the learning curve is there. I hope that we are going to understand better our systems. I hope we will realize better what doesn't work. We should embrace what works. Mm -hmm. um, and what doesn't work, we should stop finger pointing and criticizing. What we should do is get to work, boots on the ground, and start implementing solutions to the problems we are facing yeah. so we can keep looking at the future with the hope that we all want in our lives. Yeah. And you guys have done such amazing work this year, responding and taking care of people all over the place during this pandemic, which, you know, has really turned the world upside down and increased food insecurity in so many communities. So thank you for, for all of that. And anytime you're going anywhere, like if you need an extra set of hands, I, I grew up in an Italian kitchen. I'm pretty good. <laughs> I'm excellent with a cast iron pan. You just let me know. I'm, I'm ready to go anytime. Uh, anytime, Sophia, you are welcome. I mean, I know you and many, uh, many people has helped us. Uh, this wouldn't be happening without the help of so many people that I didn't even have time to thank yet. Mm. Uh, people that believe that um, we, we had to be ahead of the game, that we had to be ready uh, mm. for the wars. Unfortunately, uh, we were only the little tip of the iceberg. Mm. Uh, but what I know is that we were there at the very early when hospitals were having issues to feed people, when elderly mm. homes were having issues, when entire communities like the Navajo Nation were having issues. Uh, at one moment, we were in hundreds of hospitals a day uh, in multiple countries. I had to go to Spain where we opened uh, 16, 17 kitchens because mm. I had to go to the country that I come from and I was so proud we were able to activate the entire restaurant community there and we did the best we could to show that if we want we can do it. In the process you know fires in California in Colorado, tornadoes in Iowa, Des Moines, mm -hmm. uh, hurricanes in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Honduras, Colombia, 
Guatemala, Lebanon, uh, uh, Indonesia, and the amazing thing, myself, I've been to nine, eight, nine, ten countries, and a year later, I've been vaccinated, but uh, I cannot believe uh, at the end, the only thing we did was we wore masks, we kept distance, we took it very seriously, we wash hands even more than everybody tells me, Jose, why are you are your hands so soft and nice? Like because I wash my hands so often every single day. Uh, I look like a baby. Uh, <laughs> and and this is what we did, uh, Sophia. This I, I'm very proud of because I remember closing my restaurants around the fourteenth yeah. uh, of March, even earlier. And we created this protocol when when we were not having anything from anybody, no CDC, no, nobody was giving us what to do. So we did that and we shared it with everybody. We tried to be a little bit fun because the times were dark. And and this was Maskey uh, that was telling all of us how to behave in a kitchen, how to keep healthy, wow. how, to, how to protect yourself and how to protect each other. Uh, I can't. I can't tell you that many, many of the team members we had, they went through the entire thing, uh, COVID-free. Obviously, uh, mm -hmm. some got it. Uh, some got it even before. Uh, but uh, I will say that overall, the vast majority of, of people we've been working with, we've been uh, very blessed and very lucky for mm -hmm. how much activation we had. We've been in helicopters. We've been in military planes. In yeah. in, in in Humvees all across with different militaries of different countries, with volunteers all over the place. Mm -hmm. And and we try to feed everybody, bring water to everybody, but more important, we try to make sure that we will not only protect ourselves, but that we will help protect the people we were feeding. And I hope uh, we did a good job. And, and I'm very proud of not all the team of World Central Kitchen alone, but the many men and women yeah. that they've given time or mm -hmm. money or the many people working on the farms, on the fields, on the fishing boats, on the delivery, on the supermarkets, refilling all the shelves so everybody could feed their families or waiting in the comfort of our homes when we knew somebody will be delivering the home if you could afford it. Those men and women, obviously our nurses and all the health, to me are people that we're gonna have to be, uh, once this pandemic is over, even understanding that we lost uh, many people and many of us, we lost people we knew and loved ones. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have, once this pandemic is over, a big round of applause to all those people that not expecting anything in return, nor uh, expecting a clap or an applause. They show up every day with only one idea, to do what they were here to do, mm. to take care of everybody else, to take care of their family and in the process keeping America and the world fed. Those men and women for me are are my heroes and in this mm -hmm. pandemic uh they shown that humanity is well served with those individuals because they don't care about themselves they only care about the betterment of the lives of others mm -hmm. and this is this should be the new american dream and this should be the new dream of the world we need to live in where you you look for your own and your loved ones obviously but the new american dream should be where every one of us also wants to fight to provide for others yes. the same things that you want to provide for your own. That mm -hmm. should be the, the new American dream. Yeah, to treat your neighbors the way you treat your loved ones. You know, every person in our community deserves that kind of love. And I think about something you said after the 
the hurricane when you guys were working in Puerto Rico and you said, you know, we have volunteers who will go to the ends of the earth for people. And you talked about how you've built so many of the things in your life because you have friends who are crazy enough to do the big thing that you want to do. And I think it's in in between those things, you know, your your loved ones and your friends who in response to your big dreams or you saying, I think we can fix this, say, yeah, I'm in. I'll go with you to do that. And then the strangers who, when you say, this is how I want to fix this, show up and say, I'll do whatever it takes to help. That That's the energy I hope we bring out of this pandemic and into our future. And and I know you have so many good things in store for us. I'm, I'm curious, and this is my favorite and final thing to ask everyone who comes on the show. It's called Work in Progress. You have a lot going on. But I'm curious if it's if there's something that sticks out, if it's personal, professional, political, whatever, what feels like a work in progress in your life right now? Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, one work in progress is I realize that life never comes with instructions. Mm. And I've been trying to be the the best friend to my wife I could and my and to my friends, the best husband I could and the best father I could. And I feel I'm always behind, like uh, between work and and my daughters now they are going to university and and I think my work in progress is to make sure that I catch up with them and I um I can become their best friend, mm-hmm. uh, their best father and their best husband. Uh, not, not like I don't think I've done a, a, a bad job, but at the end of the day, I'm, I've been able to do all the things I do in my life because those four women in my life, they've been very unselfish. They've been always, uh, even when they miss me, they've been always behind me. Even when mm. I was not here, they've been behind me. And, uh, you know, uh, I need to take care of the people working with me. I need to take, obviously, care of many people around the world that I care for. But at the same time, obviously, I need to take care of of the people that, uh, like my wife, has been with me already yeah. uh, 29 years. <laughs> and I don't know why she keeps up with me. <laughs> but but I know eternally I need to be thankful because if I've been able to do any mm-hmm. of the things I do in my life, it's because them. Uh, so this is my work in progress, uh, trying to... Mm-hmm. Trying to uh, be more for her because she's always there for me. That's mm-hmm. one of my work in progress, more personal. Uh, but yeah. but the one thing, used to add one more, uh, three billion people on planet Earth cook with charcoal or wood, especially mm-hmm. women. Uh, poverty is a formula. The energy you put out versus the energy you bring in is many mm-hmm. millions of women in the world that they give more away than what they bring in. That's why they are poor mm-hmm. and they are hungry. Not, not because they are not any better. It's only because they, they give everything they have. We must mm-hmm. make sure that every household in the world is able to make sure that feeding their families is not something like takes them hours because they have to, to, to go for wood on the forest or to work four hours to buy the charcoal. Where, where they buy the charcoal right. daily because they don't have money used to buy for a month. And we need to make sure mm-hmm. that we liberate those women from almost the servitude and that is feeding humanity, making them feeding the world easier, 
faster. So the love they give away can even shine more. That's what I hope will be mm. my work in progress the next 25, 30 years of my life. Uh, bring one clean cookie stove, the same way you and I, we have a home to every single mm. family in the world. If we do that, maybe hunger and poverty is something we can eradicate in our lifetimes. But we need, we need, we have yes. a lot of work ahead of us. Indeed. Do, are you excited about all of this new battery and solar technology that might help us solve that problem more quickly? Yes and no. Mm. Uh, sometimes we need to be careful with uh, uh, the talk about technology and uh, even it's been a lot of achievements. Uh, we see mm. farmers in rural America that in rural uh, Africa that are able to know better what's the price in the market uh, on their phones or that they are able to all of a sudden do banking on their phones. But then not everybody necessarily has a phone yet or not everybody necessarily uh, has connection to a cell tower. Um, we've been doing things like, for example, in some projects where now we are able to give uh, families, especially women, gas tanks Mm. that has uh, technology attached to the bottle. And so they can be buying the gas as they need it daily. Even we may give them hundreds of dollars worth of gas in the tank. They don't need to pay more than what they need. Mm. This is an, a new way of giving a loan. It's a new way to giving uh, an interest-free loan, if you wow. may. This is a way that, yes, technology can be helping, but I'm only saying that we need to be careful that we don't go with the technology quicker than many millions around the world have time to catch up on. Right. So like always, pragmatism will win the day. Uh, the right, the, it's good that we are bold and we bring technology and advances forward. But let's make sure that in the process, we don't keep leaving people behind. Yeah. Because if not, those people will never have the opportunity to catch up again. So so it's 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 I'm 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 optimistic, but again, always with pragmatism, making sure that we don't go so quickly mm -hmm. that that sometimes uh, a simple solution can be implemented versus a more sophisticated technological one. Mm -hmm. uh, let's let's make sure that technology doesn't go ahead of of the simple solutions that we can implement quicker and faster. Uh, and where everybody can be part of. Uh, so I love technology, don't misunderstand me. But uh, at the same time, I want to make sure that technology doesn't create other problems uh, mm -hmm. beyond uh, the problems that we're trying to solve. That's yeah. that's that's what I, all I have to say about that. Yeah, that's really wise advice, I think, to people looking to solve problems too. Make sure your solutions are immediate. That's really yeah. great. Jose, thank you. This has just been such a joy. I've really loved speaking with you today and and i hope we get to do more of this in the future let's do it mm -hmm.